You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayer is that this encourages you in the Lord. Joseph. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. As you're turning there, I'm going to go to the Lord and ask for His help. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day. And Lord, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. God, I thank you for the truths in the two songs that we just sang. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you for what this section of Ephesians teaches us about your shed blood and about what it means to be redeemed through your blood. Father, we thank you that we do have hope. We thank you that that song, the last song, was not just just some hope where we're sort of um, lacking confidence and, and just hoping in the way that humans have to hope in the world that there will be a day that's better than today. But we have actual hope, which is a confident hope because of you, that there will be a day that we see you face to face and we will be finally and fully redeemed. And Father, I for one, and I think I probably speak for many in this room, I long for that day. So I thank you for real hope. Thank you for actual hope. I thank you that we have your word this morning to open and it's not dependent on my advice my words, my anything. Um, We have you, we have your spirit, we have your word. Therefore, we have all we need. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless this time in a way that only you can. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our third week in Ephesians, and those of you that have been with us, um, you, you know that we had an intro, and then we looked at the first um, few verses of this, of this section that starts in verse 3, that goes through verse 14, that in the original language, in the original Greek, which is what it was written in, is one long 205-word sentence. And so the, Paul doesn't really uh, let you eat chips and salsa very long. There's not much appetizer, okay? He dives right in in this book to some very, very deep theological truths, some that we saw last week. In fact, if you remember, I mentioned this to you. I want to mention it again. Verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1 are about the work of the Father in our salvation. Verses 7 through 10, which is where we are today, is about the work of the Son in our salvation. In verses 11 through 14, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, if he brings us back, will be about the work of the Spirit in our salvation. But ultimately, this section of Ephesians is all about praise. 
And last week we saw the work of the Father in our salvation. And as, as Paul exhorts us to praise the Father for what he's done, where he casts our minds and where he pushes our eyes and our gaze is, is not to anything that's in front of us. It, it's really not to anything that was in time or space. He pointed us to eternity's past and, and, and let us know that believers were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that believers were predestined for adoption and holiness and blamelessness, and all of these things were before we ever were, or before the world even began. All of it, salvation is the it, is based on God's ultimate sovereign will. And that's his point. And brothers and sisters, that, that's why that's encouraging for us. The reason salvation is even a possibility is because God saves. And, and that's why he starts the way that he does. So, so what's central to our salvation is the sovereign work of the Father. No one is saved unless the Father does what only the Father can do. And, and, and so it's, it's beautiful. And at the end, in the end... Praise and glory on the day we sing about, the day we see Christ face to face and we're fully and finally saved and we're with Him, there will be no chance that anybody that's in heaven can sort of beat their own chest. Because we could not save ourselves. It'll all be to the praise and the glory of God. And so in 7 through 10, where we are today, He's given us even more basis for praise, but today he doesn't go back to eternity. He goes back to Calvary. And we see the work of the Son in our salvation. So let's look down in verse 7. First two words we spent a lot of time on last week, and, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. You can see that on our website, and I think basically all the streaming outlets were there, Zach. Is that true? So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, like all of those, you can find it somewhere. And I encourage you to go back and listen just so you're kind of up to speed. But, but this phrase, in Him, it is critical. And if you remember from last week, the main message of the 180 plus times the New Testament uses in in Him or in Christ is to let us know that if we're going to be saved, now you're going to hear some redundancy here, and that's by design, is to let us know that if we're going to be saved, if we actually have hope, it's going to be in Christ and not in you. Right? Okay, so in Christ, in Him, New Testament, 180 plus times. Paul, 143 times in his letters, uses that phrase. And what that phrase communicates is that it's all in Him. All right, we've got to move on. Verse 7, next part. It says, in Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, before I keep going, I mean, you probably noticed when Brandon read this, like, man, he just, just compounds these phrases, doesn't he? I mean, he just keeps on just dropping these massive truths, just one right after the other. One right after, and, and, and sometimes they seem to flow in our mind, sometimes they don't. So what we're going to do, all I really know to do is to take them a phrase at a time. And so the first phrase is the redemption through His blood. His here, His, is that's referring to the blood of Christ. Then he goes on to say the forgiveness of our trespass. So he says, we have redemption. And if you look up, maybe you have this week, 
if you look up the word redemption in any biblical dictionary, then you're going to hear things like this. Redemption means a release by payment or freed by ransom. But in, to the early church, to the believers that would have received this letter initially, redemption was not yet a religious term in the way that it is for us. When we hear redemption, we most immediately think, almost immediately think of salvation and being redeemed by the blood of Christ. But they would have understood it more in, in, a, in a business sense. But the basic idea is to be released by payment or freed by ransom. So essentially, redemption is freedom from whatever is holding you captive. So the idea is that you are being held captive by something that has you and you have no way out, but there is an actual price that can be paid for your release or for your freedom. The issue is, is you don't have it. You don't have the money. You don't have the ability. You can't pay the debt that's owed. And so you're captive. So someone who's redeemed, it's, it's because someone else has come along. And this is a simple gospel, beautiful gospel truth, simple but beautiful. If you're redeemed, it means that someone else has come along, whether in the business world or the spiritual world. Someone's come along and said, hey, I'll pay the debt so that you can be free. And so the idea is that it took a payment to do it. You have been released by payment. All right, so, so Paul says we have redemption, which means we have this freedom. We have this release. But from what? Like, like what is it that has us, that has us bound, and, and that is such a serious circumstance that we have to be released from it, and that the debt is so high and so deep and so costly that we can't afford to get ourselves out of it? What is it that we're actually redeemed from. Now, redemption works in the New Testament, the best that I can tell, in at least three stages. And I want to give you the three stages of redemption that will help us understand this a little bit better. The first stage is this, and you see it in the first part of verse 7, is that we have currently, today, we have redemption. If you notice, it goes on to say, to sort of expound on this redemption with the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, trespass is basically the same as sin, but if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that sometimes the Bible says sin and it doesn't say trespass. The words are almost synonymous, but there is a little nuance. Sin is much more general, more like the condition of our Sin, like, like, like our sinful state or our sin nature or the condition of humanity to where trespass is much more specific. Like when you trespass, the word literally means in the Greek to take a step in the wrong direction. If you're a turkey hunter, you know what I'm talking about. At some point, unless you're way more spiritual than me, you've taken a step in a direction you probably shouldn't have because a turkey was gobbling. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just trust me. But trespass is specific sins. And, and the word means, again, to take a false step or to step where you shouldn't. So, so, so this redemption and what we have to be redeemed from has to do with this forgiveness 
because of our trespass. Now, redemption is not forgiveness, and forgiveness is not redemption. Redemption is the act that leads us to forgiveness. I think sometimes we think about forgiveness only in human terms, even when we think about the gospel's forgiveness. I forgive you sometimes whether I could pay your debt or not. You do something to me and I say, hey, look, I forgive you and we just move on. But there's been no transaction. That's not gospel forgiveness. Redemption leads to forgiveness. Gospel forgiveness doesn't come about without redemption. I mean, you understand because the trespass has a penalty and a payment attached to it that you can't be forgiven of unless you're redeemed. And so the forgiveness comes because of the payment that was paid. The forgiveness comes after the redemption. And, and so it means, like when you see forgiveness and you think redemption, it does mean that, that guilt is in view because we don't need forgiveness or pardon if we don't have any guilt. And so when it says forgiveness, it's forgiveness for the guilt incurred by our trespasses. So when we think gospel redemption, we think that it's our trespass, our sin, our trespasses, our, not only our nature, but also our specific sins that have incurred this guilt and this debt that we cannot pay. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 says this, Therefore he, that's Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now listen, this gives us some, some, some biblical definition, some really good theology on redemption and forgiveness. Since a death, that's at Calvary, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions or the trespasses or the specific sins. So this is personal. This is why we don't understand the choosing, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the choosing and the predestining that we talked about last week as just this corporate choosing and this corporate predestining. A, a lot of people interpret it that way, but the language doesn't lend itself to that because these trespasses are talking about the specific sins of specific individuals. And the gospel has to be that personal to us. You shouldn't see what Christ did at Calvary just for this greater body of work. It's for you. If you believe in Jesus this morning, He took your sin. Personal punishment that we deserve. And so He says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so, brothers and sisters, th this is a glorious, glorious aspect and part of the mission of Christ is that Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of God. And He came to provide forgiveness and righteousness for sinners. He came to bring sinners to Himself as a holy people forever. Th this is what it means to be redeemed. The price that our sin incurred has been paid. And Paul says, believer, this is a current possession. You have this today.
I feel like most of us have lived long enough to know that we're a sinner. You might not word it the way the Bible does exactly, but you might would say, you know, man, like my, my soul is, is sick. I know that I'm stained with guilt. You might be miserable in yourself because of your past decisions or your current sinful struggles. You might think that I, I am actually hopeless because of my sin. And I know that I have no way out. Well, listen, and please listen closely and look into my eyes. Jesus came for you. He didn't come for the healthy. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it makes it crystal clear that Jesus Christ came for the sick, for the sin sick, for the spiritually sick. Jesus came to take away guilt. Jesus came to wash our filthy stains. Jesus came not only to pay the penalty of our sin, but also, remember last week, He didn't just leave us broken even in our bank account. He doesn't just pay the debt and say, all right, figure it out. He paid the debt and then opened the treasure box of heaven, all of the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, and poured them into our account. So he doesn't just wash the stains, but he also clothes us in his own righteousness. That's stage one of redemption. We have redemption currently. Stage two. We will be redeemed. Now, I, I want to cheat. We're going to cheat again. We're going to cheat often. I want you to go ahead and turn in Ephesians to chapter 4, verse 30, and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so in chapter 1, he says, we have redemption. That's stage 1. And then stage 2, he says, but there's also this day of redemption. In Luke 21, 28, it says this. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads. Listen, because your redemption is drawing near. And so biblical redemption is not just the present forgiveness of sins. It's the future completion of of that redemption, which means a release and a freedom. Listen, Covenant, this is really good news. A release and a freedom from everything that's defective in us. Free from everything that makes this body and this life miserable. Now, it's not all miserable. Now, again, I'm not, I don't, just because it's raining outside, I'm not trying to be gloomy. But this redemption is more than just what we have currently now, sort of positionally. There's a future aspect to, to our redemption, and it means that there's coming a day that everything that makes the body miserable, cancer, depression, disease, aging. I know none of y'all are dealing with aging. All suffering. Redemption will someday have its perfect consummation and a final redemption of our bodies and the removal of all defects. That is moral defects, that is spiritual defects, psychological defects, emotional defects, physical defects will be gone. Romans chapter 8, the apostle says it this way, and not only the creation, 
but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. So Paul is acknowledging everything that I just said. Well, I'm acknowledging him, right? So, so this is why I said what I just said is because of what the Bible teaches us is that our current condition is that we groan inwardly, even though we have this redemption, we still are in this world that is cursed, in bodies that are cursed. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now here's our word, here's our term, the redemption of our bodies. It goes on to say, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, and what we're waiting for here is the redemption of our bodies. We wait for it with patience. And so we have redemption. There's coming a day that we will fully and finally realize in more ways than we realize redemption. Third stage is we are redeemed from feudal living. Now, to me, this one is the direction, like I told you last week, Paul has a clear trajectory of these deep theological truths, and he's going to pick up in them in, in chapter 4. Like, these deep truths are meant to produce a certain way of living. All right, so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Knowing that you were ransomed, another word for redeemed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so in between forgiveness that we currently have because of Jesus and final redemption that is coming, that we will have because of Jesus. There's this practical step that we're living in right now that says that we as Christians, now, now notice, this feudal is not, it, this isn't saying, even though the Bible does say live a holy life, this isn't necessarily talking about a holy life. This word feudal means empty or useless. All right, so here's the idea. Because of the redemption we have currently in Jesus, because of our hope of the redemption that's coming one day in Jesus, we can live in this life with purpose. It's not useless. It's not vain. It's not meaningless. And if you ask the Lord, well, why is it not useless, Lord? Why is it not futile? And he would say, because you're redeemed. You're mine. I bought you. And so the reality of redemption gives the purpose, and I think maybe even more importantly, if you want to jot this down, the reality of redemption not only gives purpose to life, it takes it out of the futileness, but it gives identity. We are Christ. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. Think of all the ways the Bible expresses our identity in Jesus and who we are because of Jesus, and that is motivation to live for his glory. And that identity and that purpose and this redemption that we have in Christ far transcends our circumstances because our circumstances can't touch any of that. Now we'll talk more in just a second about the motivation to live for God's glory because that's where he's headed. But there's another important reality about redemption. So you see the three stages. We have it. It's coming. And then there's this reality practically that we live it out. We don't live futile lives because they have purpose and meaning. We have identity because we've been redeemed. Now, another important reality about redemption is that this redemption 
was costly. In 1 Corinthians, I don't know if you have your Bibles with you, but if you want to turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This redemption was costly. We were bought at a price. Now, if you go back to Ephesians 1 and, and keep reading with me here, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now listen, according to the riches of His grace, there's, there are two phrases that show how costly this redemption is. And the first one is that it was through His blood. And the second one is, is that it was given according to the riches of His grace. And let's talk about His blood for just a second. For it to say through His blood, obviously this points directly to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. This is why I said in verses 3 through 6, the work of the Father takes us to eternity's past. In verses 7 through 10, the work of the Son takes us straight to Calvary. There are many verses about the blood of Jesus. One of my favorites is Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that says, Jesus loves us and has set us free from our sins by His blood. This redemption is not through His love. It's not through His kindness. This redemption does not come as a result of Jesus' miracles. This redemption was not through His teachings. None of those things alone would have done it. Jesus could have fed the 5,000 plus in John chapter 6 and still left us to be dead in our sins. He could have healed the invalid of 38 years in John 5 and caused him to walk and left us dead in our sins. We're saved through His blood. If His blood wasn't shed, we aren't saved. He had to die, and our salvation, our redemption had to be through His blood. I'm thankful for His miracles. I'm thankful for His teachings. I'm thankful for His love. I'm thankful for His kindness. But He could have been all of those things and not gone to Calvary and shed His blood in our place and we would be left dead in our sins with the full guilt of our sins and condemnation for our sins and we would have to pay the penalty for our own sins. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. This is a really fancy word, but it's a really good word to know. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. I practice. Don't freak out if you can't say it. As a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Because God is holy. His wrath is on currently, according to John 3.36. All who have fallen short 
of his glory and not trusted in his blood. But, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 3, his wrath has been propitiated, which means deflected or it's been appeased, it's been satisfied. Ultimately, propitiation means that God's wrath has been removed. Well, how did that happen? Not from his teachings, not from his kindness, not from his miracles, through his blood. So if you believe in Jesus this morning, God's wrath has been propitiated. The wrath that we deserve is gone because Christ took it and it came through his shed blood. So it, it's, it's costly. This redemption is costly because it cost, it had to come through his blood. Also, it came according to the riches of his grace. Notice Paul does not say out of the riches of his grace, but he says according to the riches of his grace. So let's say, I mean, who's a multimillionaire? Somebody throw a name out there. Say, say Bill Gates. I know that's not me taking any sort of stand with Bill Gates. I just know the name and we all know he's rich. Say we go to Bill Gates and we ask for a contribution. Hey, Bill, will you please give a donation to Covenant Church? We're really struggling. And if Bill Gates, as rich as he is, gave us $100, that would mean he gave us out of his riches. The contrast would be this. If we go, hey, Bill, we're struggling. We all know, I mean, we don't even have to say this because he knows we know. We know you're a billionaire and we need help. To give out of his riches would say, hey, here's a hundred bucks. To give according to his riches would be to write a check that was blank and say, do what you need to do. Whatever it costs, pay it. He uses a word also in verse 8, lavished. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, he's paid the price in full. And the apostle says this according to the riches of his grace that he lavished. Lavished means abounding. Some of you are thinking about going shopping because I said lavished. I have daughters, I know, okay. Lavished means abounding. It, it, it means that this grace, like it just keeps coming. Like if you ever sit on the shore and the waves and you're like, man, did they ever stop? The answer is what? No. It just keeps coming. His grace, it, it, it never stops. And, and if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and as your Redeemer, Paul's message is that he wants you to experience the extravagant, lavish, undeserved favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, friends, think about that. If, if that is true of you, no wonder Paul just burst into praise three times in this section. But if it's not true of you, I pray that in God's kindness he would open your eyes to the beauty of what His grace actually is. It never stops. In Romans, there must have been a chance that somebody said, my sin is greater than God's grace. And the apostle said, oh no. Where your sin abounds, he makes up a word. 
God's grace super abounds. It's lavish. He's rich. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Believe it or not, he makes Bill Gates and Elon Musk combined look like me. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Love this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and, and to our God. Now listen to this phrase. For he will, what's that word? Abundantly pardon. Pardon's the exact same language we've been dealing with. You talk about a pardon when you talk about redemption, when you talk about a ransom, when you talk about a cost, when you talk about debt that you can't pay. When you talk about forgiveness, abundantly pardon. Now we'll continue. Which he lavished upon us in verse 8, in all wisdom and insight. And so God's lavish dispensing of grace and redemption involves this wisdom and insight. Now, let me ask you some questions really quick, just as a little exercise. Did anything you just heard excite you? Did, did anything that you've heard this morning, not because, y'all don't, don't that's, let's not be weird. I'm not saying because I'm saying it or because it's such a great sermon. I'm saying anything that you've heard from the Word of God or truths about the gospel, did it cause joy in your heart today? Somebody said last week, it was, I think it might be the first time I've ever wanted to run up and down the aisles. And if I told you who it was, you would have loved to have seen it. I'll give you his initials, Randy. Faust. But, but seriously, like, were you moved at all? Have you embraced, as Paul says, the mystery of his will? Does it excite you when you see Christ in the Old Testament stories? Does it excite you when you read the stories of Christ and the words of Christ and the words of his apostles in the New Testament? When, when you see these things, do you love what you see? Let me ask you this. Have you ever read a book, heard a sermon, or just been reading your Bible? And it could be something that has been so familiar, a text that you've read over and over, but it's either explained by a teacher or it's explained by an author or you just see and you're like, but I see where have I been? Was that you? Was that the teacher? Was it the preacher? Was it the author? Is it because of you that if you heard something this morning that it caused joy in your heart because you understand the redemption that comes through Christ? Like, is that because of you? Did you finally get smart enough? Is that what happened? Did I finally cross the threshold that I'm actually saying stuff people understand? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9 lets us know where it came from. Making known to us the mystery of his will. The ability to even have wisdom and to have insight didn't come from me, didn't come from your favorite author, didn't come from your favorite preacher, it didn't come from you, it came from Him. And it's a part of the lavishness 
of the riches of his grace. Verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Man, this is loaded. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The, the summary of verses 9 and 10 is this. History is going somewhere. We're on a, fa a fast track and, and it's never been diverted. The purpose of God's will has never gotten off track. History is in a direction. Currently, the universe, as we've already seen in Romans 8, is divided between light and darkness. The whole thing, all of creation, is, is groaning with this eager expectation for what will come about in the fullness of time. And according to Paul, he, the Father, will unite all things in him, the Son. What in the world does that mean? Well, we need to go to Romans 13 to understand this, I think. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says this. And you're going to go, this is the most random thing. Why is he doing this? Just, just hang with me. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Now, the word that Paul uses for summed up in Romans 13 is the exact same word that he uses for unite in Ephesians 1. All right, so let's, let's, let's follow his logic here in 13, and we'll be able to follow his logic better in Ephesians 1. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul says, hey, you want to know what the law is about, like the sum of the law, the purpose of the law, what unites the whole law is love. Love is the sum, and he goes on to say the fulfilling. And another interesting note, the same word that's used for fulfilling in 13 is the same word that he used for fulfill in Ephesians 1. So it's safe to use these biblical exercises to understand his logic because he's using the same language. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the commandments are summed up in love according to Romans 13. Love is the fulfillment of the law, according to Romans 13. The exact same words used in Ephesians 1, which means this. The sum, the fulfillment of the law is love. Likewise, the sum and fulfillment of all things is Christ. That's what he's saying. Now let's go back and, and, and read it that way. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, that's our first clue, actually, of his logic, that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So again, thinking about that redemption that's coming one day, the Father has a plan. And so when it's his time, it's always his time, but when that fullness of time comes, to unite or to sum up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So you ask, what's the point of everything? What's the meaning of everything? Everything in all of existence only finds its sum, its purpose, and its fulfillment in as much as it is aimed at Jesus Christ. 
Colossians chapter 1. Did I put that in there, Zach? Colossians chapter 1. A few pages over to your right. Verses 16 through 21. For by Him, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head. All, all this is speaking of Jesus. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Do you know what preeminent means? It's really simple. First. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when you start to flesh that out a little more practically, it means this, that we cannot fully understand or step into what it means to be a human being unless our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. We can't fully understand or step into what it means to be a husband or what it means to be a wife unless our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. We can't understand or step into what it means to be a citizen of a country unless our eyes and gaze are fixed on Jesus Christ. We cannot understand what it means to be a friend. We can't understand fully and ultimately what it means to be a son or a daughter or an employee or an employer or a church member or an elder or anything without our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We have to understand that everything is headed in the direction of bringing glory to Christ. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2, there's coming a day that every single knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Saddam Hussein's, that's Hitler's, that's every single demon, that's everything on earth, above the earth, and under the earth will confess Christ is Lord. Covenant Church, that's where we're going. And so every aspect of our life should be aimed at bringing glory to Christ. And so this verse informs us that everything about who we are and what we do is all about Christ and His glory. That's why Paul said what he did in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, are there any things more basic to the human existence other than breathing? Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God what it's about. That's where it's headed. It's headed to the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and brothers and sisters, now we're in a stage that we can, by faith, confess Him as our Lord and be saved. But there's coming a day where that will be no longer an option. 
But make no mistake, whether you do it in this life to be saved or in the next life to prove that you should have been saved, you will confess that Jesus is Lord. And what I implore you is to confess Him as your Lord today and be saved. Be redeemed by His blood. Receive this lavish grace that never stops. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.